0: All right, open your Bibles to, well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We made a great leap here going uh, from Acts chapter 5. So, as we get ready to uh, look at Acts chapter 9, let me just give you kind of a quick survey of what's happening. So, the book of Acts is rightly titled, The Acts of the Apostles. Remember, this is the second account written by Luke. The first account written was the gospel according to Luke. And the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is the second part of this account of Jesus and the apostles and the establishment of the church and and the faith. And he's writing this to his friend, Theophilus, to give an accurate account of all that happened. He did that in the gospel to give an accurate account of all that Jesus did. Now in the Acts of the Apostles, he's giving an accurate account of what happened with the Apostles and how the, the church was established and how it grew and progressed. And so in Acts chapter 5, we saw last week, remember, we saw great unity, we saw great power, we saw great grace, and we saw great fear come on the church with Ananias and Sapphira and their lie to the Holy Spirit, which resulted in their death. Peter and John and all the disciples continue to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 5 ends with this verse, verse 42, and daily in the temple, in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, even though they were commanded not to preach and teach Jesus. Acts chapter 6 recounts the appointment of deacons in the church for the work of serving the needs of the people. It was prompted by the need surrounding the daily distribution of food to the widows and there was a... Uh, a conflict between the Jewish widows and the Hellenist widows. Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. And they thought there was a little bit of of, um, uh, favoritism maybe. Some were getting served, some weren't getting served. So the apostles appointed deacons to serve the widows and to serve the needs of the church. And in chapter 6 also, we're introduced to the ministry of Stephen. Stephen was one of those deacons appointed. And the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had a powerful witness for Christ. And it was so powerful and so effective that men falsely accused him. uh, And he was brought up before the council on charges of blasphemy. Chapter 7 records Stephen's response to the council to the false accusations made against him. And in this chapter, we see his bold indictment of the council and the rulers of Israel. And he points out their resistance to the Holy Spirit and their historic rejection of God's prophets and God's word, all of that over the centuries culminating in the rejection of the Messiah. So the prophets foretold the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And when he finally comes, And the scriptures are fulfilled. What do the men of Israel do? What do the rulers do? They do what they always did. Just like rejecting the prophets, they rejected the Christ. And Stephen gives them this indictment of their rejection of Jesus and the murder of the Son of God. And when they hear this from Stephen's mouth, The Bible says that they could not endure it, and they rushed upon him, and they carried him outside the city, and they stoned him to death. And there was a young man by the name of Saul who was guarding the garments of those council members who were executing Stephen. And chapter 7 ends with Stephen being martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 begins with the record that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. And as a result of Stephen's death and the uproar, a great persecution arose uh, in Jerusalem against the church, and Saul began to persecute the church of the Lord in Jerusalem, and his goal was to destroy it. Chapter 8, verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And while the apostles remained in Jerusalem, the Bible says all the other believers, they were all scattered to the region of Judea and Samaria, throughout that region. And as they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, it says they went preaching the gospel, making disciples, doing great and powerful works in the name of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel and that brings us to acts chapter 9 <clears throat> acts chapter 9 the first two verses so remember persecution has arose the church is driven out they're in the regions of judea and samaria Preaching the gospel, there's great signs and wonders taking place. Chapter 9 begins, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take your gospel and and Lord, by your Holy Spirit, mold and shape our minds to be conformed to the mind of Christ. Transform us, God, by the renewing of our mind that we would be a people bold in our witness, courageous in our witness, even in the face of persecution as the early church was. That, Lord, even though we may be commanded to not preach and teach in the name of Jesus, we would be a people that know that it is far better to obey God than to obey man when man's command violates God's command. And you have commanded us to preach your gospel and to make disciples. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people, that Christ's Fellowship would be a church faithful to the Great Commission, faithful to preach the gospel, faithful to make disciples. Lord, we trust you to add to the church even as you did in Jerusalem. Father, help us to be that people, to give that witness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Saul, Luke writes, Saul, now don't get confused. Saul is Paul, and Paul is Saul. Now, there's this misunderstanding that God changed Saul's name to Paul. He did not. God did not change Saul's name. Saul's name was never changed to Paul. Saul had two names. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And when Jesus addresses Saul on the road to Damascus, he calls him Saul. He doesn't call him Paul. He calls him Saul. And we see later on when Paul gives this account again, he, he, he indicates that Jesus is speaking to him in the Hebrew language. And he calls him by his Hebrew name. But when Paul goes to the Gentiles, when he leaves, when he leaves his ministry to the Jews... And to the Jews, he was known as Saul. When he leaves his ministry to the Jews and he goes to the Gentiles and he goes to the Greeks, he's known as Paul. That was his Greek name. And Luke records in this account here both names. And we see that when Paul is ministering to the Gentiles, he's called Paul. That was his Greek name. But when he is here on the way to persecute the church, He's Saul. So just a little point of clarification, because when you hear me talk about Saul, when I read Saul, it is Paul, the great apostle. We normally call him Paul. It's what he's called in the New Testament in his letters, but this is the same person. He didn't have a name change. He just went by two different names, and it was really more dependent upon who he was dealing with. And for most of Paul's ministry, he, he was the apostle sent to the Gentiles, which is why we commonly know him as Paul. But here in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So remember, the persecution arose in Jerusalem, and the persecution became so hot that all of the believers left Jerusalem, and they were dispersed, scattered throughout Judea, in Samaria, and the Bible says the only ones that remained in Jerusalem were the apostles. And Saul, wanting to destroy the church, decides that we've got to do more than just persecute them in Jerusalem, they're spreading. So he gets letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and arrest Christians from the synagogues of Damascus and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Not just men, but it says men and women. And we see later on when Paul gives this testimony that when he's talking about who he was, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer. Now, he didn't think he was a blasphemer here. He thinks he's doing God's work. Isn't that funny how we can sometimes think we're doing God's work? We can be convinced we're doing God's work. But in reality... We're doing just the opposite. We're diametrically opposed to God's work, and we can think that we're actually doing it. That is happening in the church today. And we need to be a people who can discern what actually is God's work and what is not God's work. Paul thinks he's doing, Saul thinks he's doing God's work, and he's on his way to Damascus to arrest men and women, believers, And we know that he approved of even their deaths. He cast his lot for Stephen's death, and he cast his lot for the death of many people that he arrested. So we see Saul taking the persecution of the way beyond Jerusalem to stamp out the church wherever it is found. And his purpose was to destroy the church, but God had another purpose for Saul's life. And this is really what I want to talk to you about today. Saul had one purpose in mind, and unbeknownst to him, God had a completely different purpose in mind for his life. There is the plan of man, and there is the plan of God. The plan of man is what we oftentimes live in and operate in. But there is the plan of God. God always has a plan God always has a purpose that is working above and below and around the plan of man. God has a plan and a purpose that is often not our own, just as it was with Saul here. We can have our plan and our purpose, but the plan and the purpose that truly matters is the one that God has. Saul of Tarsus devoted his life to becoming a teacher of the law And a Pharisee, he was trained by the best, most esteemed rabbi in the Jewish world. And he purposed to serve God in that way, through teaching the law, through being a Pharisee, by being as devout as possible. possible. And he thought that he was serving the purpose of God, but his plan and his purpose was misplaced. Saul had planned and purposed his education and his training in all of his resume building and all of his credentials. But it would all be derailed as part of God's plan and purpose that was yet to be revealed. So Paul is on his way to Damascus doing God's work, completely convinced of it, that arresting men and women who were Believers of Jesus Christ and even having them put to death was the work of God. Today we have believers. I don't know how they can be, but supposedly, seemingly, they are convinced. That murdering babies is the plan of God. That opening churches to... Islam and other faiths is the plan of God. That removing crosses so that our cross doesn't offend those of other faiths is the plan of God. They may be convinced with all of their heart that what they're doing is the plan and the purpose of God. But we can read the scripture and we can know from the word of God that it is not. And this is what Stephen told the rulers And it's why they killed him. He said, you stiff-necked, rebellious sons of your fathers who murdered the prophets and now have murdered the Son of God. When will you stop resisting the Holy Spirit? And they wouldn't have it. And they took him out and they killed him. Because they didn't want to hear the truth. But there was the truth right there in the Scripture. Men today don't want to hear the truth, but here is the truth right here in the Scripture. Are we going to be people of truth? Are we going to tell the truth even if it cost us our life? You say, well, that would never happen in America. I pray it doesn't. It happened to Stephen, though. It happened to countless, countless Christians throughout the ages. It's happening today and. All parts of the world. And so Saul thought that he was doing the will of God. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He was going to destroy the church. He was going to make sure he stamped out this way of Christianity so that it could not get a foothold and grow. That's who he was. But God had a different plan and a different purpose. Paul addresses these realities in his letters. So, two places in his letter to the Galatians. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Galatia concerning who he was. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Paul writing here, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. The ESV reads this way in verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me to or, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So what Paul is saying here is, I had a plan, I was on a path, and I thought it was the right path, and I was doing everything I could to make sure I was doing the most excellent job possible, but unbeknownst to me, God, before I was even born, had called me and set me apart by His grace. And God in his time, when it pleased him, revealed himself, the King James says, in me. And I think that's a very fitting way to say it. Because Jesus is not someone who's just revealed to us outwardly. If he's not revealed in you, then you will never see him and you will never know him. The people stood at the base of the cross and they mocked Jesus and Jesus was revealed to him. You realize Jesus was not crucified in secret. He was crucified openly. He wasn't born in secret. He was born openly. He had to be born in a stable because there was no room. There was no one to receive him. But he was proclaimed publicly by angels. Everything Jesus did, he did publicly. He did openly. From his birth to his death. And there were many Whom Jesus was revealed to. It's not just having Jesus revealed to you. It's having Jesus revealed in you. And this is what Paul says. He says, I realize now that God set me apart before I was born. I realize now that God called me by his grace. And here I am going to Damascus to murder Christians. When God reveals himself in me. Jesus chose the time that he would reveal himself to and in Paul. And this is what Paul is writing to the Galatians here. Recounting his former life and acknowledging that God had set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. And when it pleased God or when it was the appointed time, God revealed Christ in Paul. Christ chose when and how to reveal himself to Paul. That's when Paul began to see God's greater plan and purpose in all things. We can go through life doing our own plan, doing our own purpose, even thinking that it's God's. But when God reveals himself to us, when Christ is revealed in us, that's when we begin to understand That perhaps God's plan and purpose is not the same plan and purpose that we have for ourselves. That's what happened to Paul. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippian church. Now what's happening here is these Judaizers are coming in telling these Gentile believers, you've got to become Jews, you've got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised, otherwise your faith is worthless. See, the Jews were all okay with, keeping, with, with uh, believing in Jesus as long as they were keeping the law. Well, for Jews, that wasn't a problem because the Jews were all good with keeping the law and trusting in Jesus. But when they began to preach to the Gentiles who weren't under the law, the Jews said, well, now, though, you've got, to, you've got to become Jews. You've got to come under the law. Otherwise, faith in Jesus doesn't do, do any good for you. Paul comes, who birthed these churches, and he's writing this letter, and he is condemning those Judaizers. He's condemning those Jews who are coming into these Gentile churches, telling them, you've got to become Christians. And in the process of this, Paul reminds these Gentile believers who he was at one time. He was not a Gentile. He's a Jew. And Paul writes, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. And then he begins to list his credentials here. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung. Or we could use some other words that I won't use, but you understand what he's saying here. And that's the word he uses. He doesn't candy coat it here. He said, all that that was so important to me, all of that resume building, all of those credentials, all of that that I thought was going to propel me to the top of the Jewish world, he said all of that is a load of manure. It means nothing. I gladly suffer the loss of those things, of all things that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Remember, he said... Concerning that righteousness, I am blameless. And he's not lying. But he understands that righteousness will not get me salvation. That righteousness does not gain me anything with God. It is the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. I suffer the loss of all things, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, I had a plan one time. I had a purpose one time. And it was wrong and it was misplaced. And I thought it was God's, but it was not. And one day Jesus revealed himself in me and I realized that my plan and my purpose was not right. And I suffered the loss of everything because I embraced the plan and the purpose of God. The true plan and purpose of God. That may be hard for us to understand, but if you realize who Paul was in that world, where he was headed and what he had already done and the price that had already been paid for him to be at that place of excelling in that world, when Paul embraced the way of Jesus Christ, when Paul began to preach the gospel of faith, of justification through faith, not by the law, Paul, Paul literally lost everything. All of his contacts, all of his connections, all of his network, he was now shunned by that community. And when he says, I suffered the loss of all things, he's not using hyperbole here. He literally did. That's hard for us to understand because we've grown up in a culture that is friendly to Christianity. For, for many of us, most of our lives, it was expected that you were It was weird if you weren't a Christian. We don't live in that world anymore. We don't live in that nation anymore. For many people today, being a Christian is the weird thing. Expecting to trust in Jesus is not the norm. Going to church is no longer the socially acceptable, normal thing. You do in America. In fact, if you do, you're kind of looked at, kind of funny by a lot of people. So Paul says, this is who I was. But I lost all of that, that I may gain Christ. He found his true purpose. He found God's plan and God's purpose for his life. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field in which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If we understand what we have found in Jesus Christ, there is nothing we will not give up in order to gain that and to keep that. When God in His grace chooses to reveal Himself in us, we come to realize that God has a plan and a purpose in all things that concern our life. It all comes down to faith and trust. Do we trust God's plan and God's purpose, or do we trust our own? Do we trust the ways of God, or do we trust our own way? Will we follow our own way because it feels right, or will we follow God's way because it is right? And there is a difference between what feels right and what seems right and what is right. How do we discern that difference? Not based on what we feel, but based on what God has revealed to us in his word. These are the questions that we must answer every day in some form or some fashion in small ways and in great ways. Paul was following what seemed right. He could see no other way than the persecution of the church and stamping out Christianity. Then God intervened and literally knocked him to the ground and blinded him with light. It's funny, Paul could see no other way, but he was truly blind. And then when God reveals himself, when Christ reveals himself to Paul, He is physically blinded, but now he is able to see the true way. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. And let's read further into this chapter, beginning of verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank." If you didn't realize this before, we are people who love details because we are people who love control. Consider the minimal detail that God gives to Saul. Think about how much detail is missing from those instructions. Damascus is about 135 miles from Jerusalem. So Paul has traveled almost 135 miles. It doesn't tell us how he traveled. We always think of Paul riding a horse, but nowhere in the scripture does it mention him riding a horse or donkey or anything. It doesn't tell us that. We can assume all kinds of things, but however he got there, he traveled 135 miles. What we do know is he didn't drive a car. So he got there. It took him a lot longer than two and a half hours. It took him probably days, and he's on it. He knows where he's going, but now he's blind, He's he's disoriented, he's being led by the hand, and all God says is, go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. Now, how many of you would like to have that amount of detail if you were left on the road blind, and now being led by the hand. Well, well, who's going to tell me? Well, where do I go? And The Bible doesn't tell us any of this. God just says, go, and you'll get further instruction. How many of you love that? How many of you love it when God just says, go, and wait for further instruction? We don't like that, because we like being in control. And because we like being in control, we like details. Because details help us feel as though we have more control than we really do. We don't like it when God fails to give us the details we demand. And He often withholds those details until He chooses to reveal His plan and His purpose. And in His grace, God sometimes puts us in a position that leaves us no other option but to follow His plan. Saul was blind, he became utterly dependent and had no real option but to follow the way given by God. We are constantly having to choose to follow our own way or to follow God. Sometimes it's with all the details, sometimes it's with no details. But we're all faced with the same choice. Are we going to follow our own way or are we going to follow God's way? And when God changes our heart and gives us a new identity in His Son, We find ourselves following a new way, God's way. And His way is a path that we're not used to taking, leading us to places we're not intending to go. So it can be tempting to go our old, more familiar way. We have to trust God. When we're tempted to go our old, more familiar way, because that's what we're comfortable with, that's what's always worked, For us before, that's when we've got to stop and we've got to remind ourselves, I must trust the Lord. I can't go my way anymore. I have to go God's way. We trust God in the better way that he has for us. Even if we cannot see it, even if we lack the details we desire. This is what Saul did. He trusted God even though he was blind. And very often, God points us in a direction and tells us to go, but gives us little detail about our journey. God may even send us off blind. Very often, we're left waiting for further instructions. This is why God requires faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We want to see, but God doesn't always let us see. We want to know, but God doesn't always let us know. We want to see far ahead in all the detail, but God says, No, I'm just going to blind you right now. I'm just going to let you go blind for a while, whether that's literally or figuratively. We have to have faith, we have to trust His plan and His purpose. We have to have faith that God will give us all the directions we need to get us where He has planned for us in His purpose. Those directions and those details may seem minimal or almost non-existent sometimes, but God knows the way when we cannot see it or even imagine it. As we trust Him, He will direct our paths. Proverbs 3, 5-8, through 8, trust in the Lord With all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. It's to our benefit in every way that we trust in the Lord and not in our own way, that we lean on Him and not on our own understanding. To quote the poet Robert Burns, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, and thankfully they do. Paul had a plan as he was going to Damascus. Thankfully it went awry. And thankfully for us, he gave us two thirds of the New Testament in his letters. And we Gentiles probably wouldn't be here talking about the gospel if it weren't for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So thankfully, his best laid plans went awry that day that Jesus revealed himself in the Apostle Paul. The demise of our plans and our purpose may lead us right into the very plan and the very purpose God has for us And this is why we must never lose hope, even when things around us can seem hopeless. We may be blind, but in His time, God will give us sight to see His plan and His purpose in all things. Even when we do not have the details, we do have the end of all things. You might not know all the details, but you know the end of all things because the Scripture has revealed it. The end of all things is the glory of God. And we might not know all the details and all the twists and turns of our own journey, the plans and the purpose God has for us, but we do know this. God promises that it is good and it is full of hope. We don't have to know all the details, but we have to know Jesus. And if we know Jesus, then we know enough We can still want more. We can want the details. But if God chooses not to give, if God chooses to leave us blind, the question is, do we know Jesus? And do we trust Jesus even when we can't see our way? God has prepared for us A good future and a good hope in Jesus Christ. We all have our own plans and our own purpose. Sometimes we talk about that in grand terms. What am I going to be when I grow up? What's my next career move? What's my 10-year plan? Where am I ultimately trying to get to? But you know, we can have a plan and purpose as simple as, I wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch today. I wonder what I'm going to cook for supper tonight. I wonder when I'm going to change the oil in my car. Keep hearing that knocking. I know I need to do that. Our plans can be grand. Our plans can be very daily. Very mundane. God's plan and God's purpose is not just in the grand scheme of things. God's plan and God's purpose is in the very details of everything we do. God lives in the weeds. He lives in heaven, but he also lives in the weeds. And he's in the details. Remember, go back to your scripture and read those chapters Read those books of the Bible where God is meticulously and boringly listing genealogy after genealogy and number after number. And you think, why on earth is God doing this? We just skip over those books of the Bible because they seem meaningless to us. No, they're not meaningless. They wouldn't be in the Bible if they were meaningless. And if, if it doesn't tell us anything else, it should tell us that God is very much involved in the minute details of life and don't think that he's not. So God's plan and God's purpose touches every area of our life from the greatest and the grandest long-term plan to what you're going to go home and eat for lunch today. And don't think that it doesn't. And don't trust in your own plan, and your own purpose, in your own way. Trust in the Lord and submit everything to His way, to His plan, and to His purpose. If we do that, we will be people of the way, people of faith, and that's what God wants us to be, and to give witness to His glory. Amen? Let's prepare to come to the table. Trust in Jesus, in the small things and in the great things. Trust in Jesus. Invite God to derail your plans and your purpose. If your plan and your purpose is God's plan and purpose, then he doesn't have to derail it. But if your plan and your purpose is not God's plan and purpose, then he better derail it or you're going to be in trouble. So it never hurts to ask him, Lord, if my plan and my purpose is not yours, please derail it. Please knock me to the ground. Do something, to intervene in my life, and don't let me continue on a path thinking that this is your plan and your purpose when it's not. Trust in Jesus. Church, come to the table. Come trusting. Come thankful. Let's celebrate Jesus. All right, let's stand. God has called us to be people of faith. Faith is not about what we can see. Faith is about who and what we know to be true, even when we cannot see. Before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. We are still people of the way today. Jesus is the way. He is also the truth and the life. And there is no other way, figuratively or literally. Any other way leads to death and destruction, no matter how enjoyable it may be for a season or even a lifetime. If God intervenes and knocks us down on our way, it is grace. The amount of detail God gives to us is grace. The lack of detail God gives to us is grace. One thing Jesus has told us, is that His grace is sufficient. Our plan must become submitted to His plan, our purpose to His purpose. His way must become our way. His way is revealed to us in His Word. To be people of the way, we must be people of the Word. If God has not intervened in your life to derail your own plan and your own purpose, Pray that He does. It is the only means of coming into His way. God's instructions may lack detail. His direction may seem counterintuitive. Sometimes God leads us through the valley of shadow, but it's always to take us to higher ground with a table prepared for us, even though there are enemies all around us. There are always enemies until God puts the last one underfoot. And even in the face of our enemies, we are never without hope, for we are never without Him. The Lord has not only promised to never leave us or forsake us, the Lord has promised to build His church. We cannot lose no matter what happens. We are to be a people filled with hope because we are a people filled with His Spirit In the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Hope in God. He has a plan and a purpose in all things. Abandon your own and look to His. He can bring the two together if He wills. If not, trust Him. He will give you sight in His time and in His way. Amen.